in church. Um, it's not easy to take um, chapter 13 of Mark as a as a standalone episode. I've called, I don't normally name my talks, by the way. I normally get harassed for a title midweek and I come up with one. But um, not the end of the world I've called uh, my talk this morning. And it's, yeah, as I said, it's not easy to take chapter 13 of Mark as a, as a standalone episode. Sorry, it's, or it's easy, should I say, to take it as a standalone episode, to see it as this 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 event, this 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 occurrence that sort of um, doesn't quite fit into what we re- what we've been reading or what we've been going through. You know, like a bit like when you're watching a series on Netflix or Amazon. Not that I, I do such things often, and and there'll be like a random bonus episode sort of stuck in the middle of the, the a season. That j- sometimes that of before or after like the mid-season finale, and it might be related to the main narrative of, of the of the show or the season. But a lot of the time, it's used to explore like a random side plot or to explore a particular character's past or, or certain experience. But as we know, there's nothing random about Jesus and there is nothing random about chapter 13 and, and where it appears in the chain of events. So let, before we delve into chapter 13, let's look at the build-up to this chapter and, and what's been going on. And In chapters 11 and 12, as we've seen over the last few weeks, they're all full of Jesus' negative statements about the religious establishment in, in Israel at the time. And we see him cursing the fig tree that wasn't bearing any fruit. And this was a metaphor referring to the unproductiveness of the religious system of his time. And then he goes on to clean out the temple. And then with the parables of the tenants, Jesus is describing Israel's rejection of the son. And he prophesies that the vineyard will be taken away from Israel and given to others, as Jesus says. And he goes on to say that the stone that Israel has rejected will become the cornerstone. Looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken against them, but were afraid of the crowd, so they left him, we read. Jesus is really starting to rile them up. And he's speaking clearly enough that the leaders are plotting to, to arrest him and kill him. And chapters 11 and 12 are also filled with, with conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in chapter 11, we again see them questioning Jesus' authority. And, and Jesus turns it around on them and by asking them to say whether John's baptism was from heaven or of human origin, and they didn't have an answer because Jesus had caught them in a trap. And in chapter 12, we see them trying to trap Jesus with, with questions about paying taxes and the resurrection and, and who's, who's David's son is. And Jesus completes his, his run of attacks and confrontations with the religious leaders by condemning the teachers of the law, warning the people to watch out for them, walking around in their flowing robes and their most important seats in the synagogue, and their lengthy prayers for show. And then he sits down and he teaches about the offering from the widow to point out the shallowness of the big offerings from the rich and the elite, but the richness of the offering of the poor widow because she gave all she had. And that brings us to where we find ourselves this week in chapter 13, with Jesus leaving the temple with his disciples and him prophesying that it will be thrown down. And so we see that this chapter is very much part of the journey of Jesus through Mark that we've been on. Nothing is for nothing with Jesus. It's all part of his journey to the cross. And as we'll see, this chapter is is almost an introduction to the rest of, of Mark, the rest of the passion story, the passion of Christ. 
a horrendous time, but one that climaxes with Jesus' resurrection. So before we dive in, brothers and sisters, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. As, as Jesus said to his disciples and to us in this very passage, heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. And we thank you that we are here today. We're meditating, we're learning from, and we're being convicted, we pray, by your son's words. And as we hear your word today, may it be nourishing to our souls, may it may alter the course of our week and may infect our conversations and, and our interactions with those we encounter for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Jesus' name. And may the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we're going to have a, a dramatic reading on video if technology permits. So keep your Bibles open um, at chapter 13 of Mark and the reading is going to be on a video and this video kind of just sets the scene for what the conversation would have been like, all the things Jesus is describing in this chapter um, are going to be like, would be like, was like um, and it saves me having to read a long chapter of the Bible because it's been read for me this week. when I used to rave with my cousins and it'd be a knock at the door and it would be the police locking down the, uh, the house party. So YouTube just tried to lock down the thing. I believe it was the enemy. Um, anyway, here we are back on um, Ecclesia SOS part two. Um, I'll read the last portion of the text just to get us back in the Bible reading mode. Um, but about that day from verse 32, or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know what, the, what that time will, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at night, or at, whether in the evening or at midnight. See, this is why I played the video, because I can't read. Or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And what comes to mind when you think about the end of the world? It might be men walking up and down Lewisham High Street with big long beards with a placard on their back saying the end is nigh, repent and believe. Or you might think of something like that big scene in Avengers Endgame where the forces of good are competing with the forces of evil and there's no real clear winner because there's losers on both sides and, and the, the end game with the evil one being defeated um, brought its own harsh consequences um, for the, the rest of the world. I'm slightly digressing, but it, it, it can all sound a bit sort of out there or, or maybe even loopy, this biblical end of the world stuff, until we realize, as we see in chapter 13, that Jesus himself spoke a lot about the end of the world. And we see here in this chapter, he has some questions for, from his disciples, and we see in the, even in the opening verses 
that Jesus sets about clearing up some of their confusion. And as we've just reviewed um, earlier, and, and as we've been looking at over the last few weeks, we've got that the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is reaching boiling point. You know, we've reached the last week of Jesus' life, and their plans and their, and their plots are about to come to completion. And Jesus has been warning them repeatedly that if they reject the Messiah, then God will reject them. Warning them that the time has come, they've, they, they've turned away from God and they've been given every opportunity through the whole Old Testament period to turn back to him. But if they reject Jesus, the final messenger, that's going to be the straw that brucks the camel's back. And he's also warning that the, that the temple authorities and the, the whole religion, you know, the old religion of the temple is coming to an end. And so as he was leaving the temple, um, one of his disciples said to him in verse 1, as we read, Look, teacher, what big stones, what magnificent buildings. This is the said same temple that Jesus has been condemning as corrupt. I was based at a, a Baptist church in Seven Sisters uh, briefly a few years ago. And they had this organization come in and um, they, they had this exhibit, which was a, a massive it took up sort of a really big space in this church, a massive model of the first century temple. And, and it was stunning, I can't lie. Um, really sort of lifelike and, and detailed, and, and it really gave you an insight into like the magnitude of the building. It was like a town in a town, and, and almost like a mini Vatican city. You know, there was inner courts, outer courts, courts within courts. And the temple would have been a spectacular site. It was located at the top of a hill, and Herod begin, began building it in 20 BC, and it took over 50 years to complete. And it was reported that the walls of the stadium, grounds, so that the, the walls around the grounds of the temple were a stadium in length each side. And on the outside of the stadium, of the, oh, stadium on the outside of the temple even, um, there was white marble, which would have been decorated with gold, and inside there would have been gold and silver and finely polished cedar wood, massive columns and high ceilings. At the time, it would have been one of the wonders of their world, of the world. And even more significantly, for the Jewish people of the day and for the disciples, this would have been the place where God, uh, God himself is home here on earth. The place where God meets with those deemed holy enough to enter into his presence. And to these country boy disciples, they would have been a bit taken in by this, the big city sites. And we see that in, in their almost awe and wonder. But some of them at least still didn't get the significance of Jesus' conflict with the religious elite and his condemnation of the temple establishment. But we need to remember how slow the disciples have been all along this journey we've been taking through, through Mark, just how spiritually unaware they've been sometimes. The disciples, they see the beauty and the splendor on the outside of the temple, but Jesus, the good shepherd, the wise teacher, he sees the rotting cancer deep inside the temple system and its rulers. And even in these first few verses, we've got to stop. And we need to ask ourselves, what is our temple? right here, right now, today, in our lives, what or maybe who are we centering our lives around? 
What is massive and significant to us? What or who are we too attached to? Taking our time, our attention, our desires, our, our worship. Because that's the point here in these opening verses. The disciples, they're attached to this temple with its glistening gold and, and shiny marble. Not seeing that inside that very temple that looks really good on the outside is wickedness and corruption and sin. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples in response, don't get too attached to it because judgment is coming on it. You see them great buildings we read, every single one of them will be torn down, Jesus says. Brick by brick or, or stone by stone, should I say. Not one stone, he said, will be left unturned, is his response. And we know that in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple happened. It was destroyed by the Romans. It's said that over 1.1 million lives were lost in the siege, and most of them would have been Jewish. And we read on that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple with Peter and James and John and, and Andrew, having this private conversation. And what we did see on the video earlier, and what I wanted to illustrate, was just what that conversation would have looked like. It wasn't a meeting room, you know, with screens and coffee pots and, and, and tangerines like we've got here this morning. Taste the difference from Sainsbury's. It would have been huddled, in, you know, in dirt on a hill in the dark with a fire, looking around to see who's listening. And there's not 12 disciples. Jesus, there's a f only a few of them in this discussion. And you can see Jesus in the video patterning them, like really to go into task on them. And they're asking Jesus, when are these things going to happen and how will we know that they've happened? And his response is, watch out. Or if you, if you look in the New King James, take heed, we read. Take heed. Jesus is warning his disciples to pay attention, to keep your eyes open and make sure you're fully alert. Because as we read in verse 5, there will be people that come along and try to lead them astray. Messianic, imposters claiming to have Jesus' authority and to have come in his name, even saying, I am he, Jesus says. And this was nothing new. There, there was false messiahs popping up even in Jesus' time. And we read in cha chapter 4 of Acts that there was a man named Theodos who was going around claiming to be somebody, it's, it says. Had over 400 followers, but he was killed and his men were dispersed and it came to nothing. And we, we've seen modern-day false messiahs, even in our li lifetime, um, Got that guy, Vernon Howell, who led the Branch Davidson's cult back in the 70s and 80s. And this culminated in the death of 75 people, 75 of Branch Davidson's, uh, Davidson's members, including 25 children at a siege at their compound in Waco, Texas. False messiahs, don't let them deceive you. Watch out. And there are many in our lives that can be led astray as well. I mean, I work with young people, so they're f front of my mind. And they can be led astray by their peers, you know, by their sometimes toxic social circles. And how many times have we seen a young person, or, or maybe even one of our own children, get, get hooked into that popular person in their social circle, that, that Messiah figure who everyone circles around and plans around and doesn't want to upset, etc., etc. And social media, you know, one of the most beautiful inventions, but also one of the most heinous at times. So many Messiah-like people with their accounts influencing not just young people. 
And it's no different for us so-called grown folk. You know, we can be deceived or led astray just as easy. I'm slightly digressing as usual. But if, if we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, we will not be deceived when these false messiahs arrive in our midst. You know, the key to avoiding deception is not only knowledge of the signs of what a false messiah might look like, but rather, and more importantly, is personally knowing that one true living God. When you hear of wars, we'll move on to verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Nation rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom. Just how many wars or rumours of wars have we heard about? Well, in just over... You know, just over the last hundred or so years, there's been World War One, there's been World War Two, there's been the Korean War, there's been the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and probably many smaller conflicts that we aren't even aware of that have happened. War seems to be commonplace, and, and so much so that we've almost become normalized to seeing a conflict on the TV or in the newspaper. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. Slight paraphrase. These are the beginning of birth pains, he says. And women experience contractions during labor, as we know, which, you know, if we follow the analogy through, increase in frequency and intensity until finally the baby is delivered. And Jesus' second coming can, can sort of be compared to this delivery. The contractions before the delivery are sometimes called birth pains. And according to these verses, they include, as we've just read, people coming in Jesus' name, saying that they're the Messiah, deception due to false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, nations and kingdoms rising up against each other, famines, earthquakes, plagues. I'm no woman. It's true. But I've heard an experience with the, you know, the expecting of my own children, you know, that women look forward to the birth of, of their child with both fear and joy. And fearing the pain, but looking forward to bringing into the world their precious baby to meet and greet it for the first time. And as the due date approaches, the mood even more intensely gets mixed with joy and fear. But in my experience, it was mostly joy. More hope than despair. But even at the peak of labor pains, you know, the joy isn't completely eliminated. I can still remember excited facial expressions in the, the delivery room while at the same time sucking hard on that gas and air, while digging their nails into me, and then smiling again. Actually quite sinister, actually, when you put it like that. Um, <laughs> the psychology of childbirth. And then the baby's here. And for the new mother, for the most part, those painful memories dissolve and joy is left behind. And as Mark writes his gospel, as he's writing it, the church is in the midst of birth pains. There's persecution, there's false messiahs, there's Christians being led astray. And we need to remember this in the middle of our own troubles. You know, just look at what the world has been through over these last 18 months. You know, there isn't one of us alive today that hasn't been affected by COVID in some way. Some of us in more painful ways than others. But it's affected us all. You know, you can go on BBC News, CNN, Sky News, any dot news outlets website, and there's wars and, and rumours of wars. And we have our own personal wars and crises. A bleak medical diagnosis for ourselves, maybe, or, or a loved one. Losing our job or our home or our partner. 
Jesus says these things are the beginning of birth pains. These birth pains, they've been occurring on the earth for the longest time, but they're increasing and will carry on increasing until the end. And when a major tsunami hits or when the Twin Towers went down, for example, you had people queuing up with their conspiracy theories. You know, what is God doing here? Is, is this part of God's plan? But Jesus is saying here that these things must happen. Don't latch on to them. The end is still to come. And during the final generation before Jesus' return, these birth pains will have an even bigger intensity. And this all points to Revelation chapter 6 and, and the opening of the seals, but we're really not here for that today. So I'm, I'm going to keep it moving. I'm not going to go into that too much. But I'll close this section with some encouragement from Jesus' letter to the Philadelphian church in Revelation chapter 2, where he says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. We see here that Jesus is promising to keep his faithful believers not just from the trial, but from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Believers are, are never referred to as earth dwellers or those who dwell on the earth in the NIV. The earth dwellers are, are the unbelievers in Revelation. That's not us, if you're a believer, because our faith in Jesus, we're saved. As I said, we haven't got time for revelations this morning. We're going to move on to the next chunk here, um, verses 9 to 13. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. This is bad news for the disciples. Jesus letting them know that they'll be beaten in the synagogues and they're, they're going to experience severe persecution. And we know that Stephen, shortly after the church is founded at Pentecost, at the first Pentecost, becomes the first Christian to be martyred. But there's also good news, and, and good news that eclipses this, this bad news. This suffering that the disciples will experience is for a purpose, being witnesses for Jesus in front of rulers and kings. When the disciples are arrested, they'll be led into high-level areas that they wouldn't normally be invited into. And they'll bear witness to Jesus the cross and the gospel to rulers and kings who would otherwise never have heard the gospel. And in the book of Acts, we see plenty of occasions where Christians are arrested and they use this, these occasions as opportunities to be a witness for Jesus. When Peter and John are arrested in Acts 4, they use this time to witness to the high priest and to other religious leaders. And when Peter is called before the council and the highest religious court of the day, in Acts 4, he refuses to obey an order to stay silent about Jesus. And the council have him flogged, but the apostles class this honor as an honor for Jesus, for his sake. And then we see Stephen is arrested in Acts 7 and appears before the council. He preaches a really long sermon to them and they respond by making him the first Christian martyr. I could go on, but we see here, even in these first few examples, how the Christians back in the book of Acts would use every opportunity, even ones filled with persecution, opposition, to share the gospel with the audience that they were in front of. And countless generations of Christians since have been enduring the same thing. And some might ask, why doesn't God just bring it to an end? Why doesn't he just, just, just thunder dance? Why does he allow all of this to happen? 
In verse 12, Jesus says, A brother will betray their brother to death, and a father his child, children rebelling against their parents. I mean, what horrible thoughts. But till this day, in parts of the world, when a strict religious family discover that their child has turned to Jesus, they'll just hand them over to the, to the death penalty. So why doesn't God put an end to it? Why doesn't Jesus return and, and bring an end to this world right now? Well, the answer we see is in verse 10. Jesus says, and the gospel must be preached to all nations. And this is Jesus' response to the question back in verse 4. The gospel must be preached to all nations. The end isn't quite here yet. And there's no calculation. You know, we've, got, we've not been given a quota that's got to be filled uh, before Jesus can return. That's not why we're told this. Here Jesus is saying these troubling times are for a reason. They f- they, they, their first reason is that the gospel must go out to the world. And most of us won't face you know, torture or bloodshed as, as a lot of Christians have in this period of waiting for Jesus' return and, and even in our time. But I guess we all, you know, have our own forms of persecution and suffering. And it's in these times of trials and, and persecution and suffering, you know, that we question why does God allow us to go through what we go through? And again, the answer is in verse 10. It's because of the gospel. Because every suffering, every trial, every persecution we go through is another opportunity for us to share the gospel and to live it out in word and deed. So don't be deceived, Jesus is saying. Troubled times come first. In verse 14, Jesus zooms in on a particular time of trouble. And this is answering a specific question that has been asked early on back in the chapter. When will the temple be destroyed? And the answer could have been 70 AD because this is when the the temple was destroyed by the Romans, as I mentioned earlier. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand, Jesus says. And how how can the reader understand? Who is the reader? And and, and what is he supposed to be understanding? This, This isn't a note here from Mark Um, to the readers of his gospel to understand what he's saying. It's got to have been Jesus that has said it. And Jesus isn't speaking about the reader of the book of Mark. He means the reader of the book of Daniel. Because these words might not be familiar to us, or to most of us, but they come from the book of Daniel. But it it would have made more sense to the Jews who knew Daniel and also knew the recent history where some of Daniel's words had already been fulfilled. And if you've got your ancient manuscript paper Bible open, hold your finger in Mark 13, flick over um, with me to Luke 21, verse 20. This is me. Pretend that you're all in front of me and I can see you all flicking your Bibles. And um, me giving you a minute or two. uh, Okay, are we all there? Yeah, good. And And it reads, when you see... Being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. Luke is speaking about the same event using similar words, but he narrows it down for us. This is referring to Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Those armies are the abomination that caused desolation. 
They stand where they do not belong at the gates of Jerusalem with its holy place, the temple. It's a first century Jewish way of saying, watch out, look out for that time when the Romans surround Jerusalem. Let's turn back to Mark, assuming you all turn to Luke. So Jesus isn't talking now about, or in this part, about the end of the world. Just as he hasn't been so far in this chapter, there would have been no point if if we were talking about the end of the world, there'd be no point in telling people to flee and to go into the mountains, as if being up on the mountains is going to save people, they're going to be any safer up there when God comes to destroy the whole world. He's talking about a particular event, the fall of the Jerusalem temple. And historians tell us that it happened in around 70 AD. And many of the Jews stayed in the city, but the Christians apparently knew better. Someone had told them that they needed to get out of the city and go to the mountains. And that's exactly what they did. They gathered in a place called Pila, in the nearest mountains to Jerusalem. And the temple was destroyed and and the city faced terrible persecution. Let's look at verse 19. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now this might sound a little bit over the top. This is really the worst events that's happened. I mean, look at the Great Plague, for example, that swept across Europe, or even in recent times, the COVID pandemic, or transatlantic slavery, or the Holocaust, or the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima. You know, it's got to be these events that are the signs of the end of the world. But that doesn't really make any sense either. Why would Jesus then say that this event is never going to be equaled again? But these words are taken almost word for word from Daniel chapter 9. So Jesus' words for those around him at the time, who were familiar with the words of the book of Daniel, made sense. It seems that Jesus isn't saying this is the worst distress that anyone will face, but this is the worst distress that Israel, Israel will face the people of God. This is almost like the end to Israel in the Old Testament sense, to to its religion, based around the temple, centred around Jerusalem. God's judgment has come on Israel. Jesus then makes it clear in verse 24 that when the end times do come, there'll be no missing it. But in those days, following the distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. How can we miss it when the whole world and universe is is falling apart around us? We will all see see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, Jesus says. We're not going to need a prophet to tell us this is going to happen or it's happening. And as believers, we don't need to worry about, you know, because as we read, Jesus will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. You might miss the important football match that's on telly later. You might miss the Wimbledon final, or has that already happened? But you will not miss the end of the world. So let's not be distracted trying to predict when this is going to happen. There is a job to do in the meantime, and that's to share the gospel with all the world. And there will be tough times now and in the future but as Jesus said in verse 11 just say whatever is given to you at the time for it's not you speaking but the Holy Spirit Jesus finally gives his answer to the original question of when 
When is this all going to happen? It's here in verse 32. No one knows about the day or the hour. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Verse 35. Keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. It could be five minutes. It could be 5,000 years. Don't be caught out sitting back though. Thinking there's plenty of time. In verse 77, what I say to you, Jesus says, what I say to you, disciples, asking me this question. Jesus is saying to everyone, to every disciple, to each of us here today, or sitting at home, thousands of years later, Jesus is saying, watch. And are you watching? And some of us gathered today may not be watching. Some are not ready at all. If you, if you face God right now at this moment and you haven't given your life to Jesus, you're going to have to admit that you are part of the problem in this world, not part of the solution. You'd be faced with the realization that you're part of the evil that he has come to destroy and wipe out. Harsh as it sounds, that, that's real life. And if this is you this morning, then you need Jesus' rescue. You need his help. That's the very reason why Jesus is holding back from destroying the world, from bringing justice to those that don't believe in him. And if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, that's you. And that's so that you can turn to him and be rescued. Don't waste time. Let's not test God's patience. Watch, as Jesus says. Even many of us believers, you know, we, we've been believers for a long time, some of us. And we trust that we're ready for when Jesus comes back. But for some of us, you know, after a while, it, it can seem like this wait is really long. You know, that first excitement of becoming a believer and, you know, it might have worn off in it and it just seems like a really long, hard slog sometimes. And we get so used to it all, you know, I, you might have began, you know, your walk with Jesus, praying really enthusiastically for your friends and family who aren't Christians, but then nothing seems to happen. You know, and we, and we have all, the, all that stuff, maybe embarrassment, maybe worldly stuff that we're holding on to, maybe we're conflicted in some of our, our relationships. You know, what, what stuff is holding us back, or holds us back, from actually sharing the gospel with our friends and family, our adding colleagues? The good news that Jesus died for our friends, for our families, for the people that are in our lives that don't know this yet or need to hear it again. Take that to God, you know, whatever that stuff is that gets in the way of you sharing the good news. Let him help you with it. Let's not be sleeping when Jesus returns, family, you know. Let's be doing what he commanded us to do. Let's be watching, let's be ready. Pray day by day for those people who don't know Jesus. Go on praying for them. Make it a habit. There's apps that can help you with it nowadays. I've discovered recently. Listen out for opportunities to share your faith. You know, Be bold. Be, be brave. Know that God has gone before you and has put the same power that raised Jesus from the dead inside of you. Plane's landing now. 
you know, this, this passage can be confusing to take in. You know, sometimes it sounds like Jesus is talking about imminent events like the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD, or other times it sounds like Jesus is talking about his second coming, or as we've seen with our, our little journey through this chapter this morning, maybe Jesus was talking about both present and future. But regardless of which view is correct, Jesus' encouragement to his disciples, and that includes us, is the same. Stay alert. And Jesus repeats this message about nine times in, in this chapter with, with different phrases. Watch out, do not be alarmed, be on guard, keep watch. So regardless of whether Jesus is talking about the past or the future, his answer to his disciples' question is less about a date, but more about an attitude of confidence in God. And Jesus tells us that persecution will come, and, and this is good news. When it seems that the battle is being lost, Jesus is preparing us for victory. And when the disciples are captured and beaten, they all proclaim the good news of Jesus to kings and governors. And when they are put on trial, the Holy Spirit gives them a perfect defense to offer. When their families betray them and kill them, they will be saved. Through their faithfulness, all nations will hear the good news of Jesus. But how do we know this for certain? You know, how do we know that beatings and court cases and death, sufferings, persecutions is good news? How do we know that the Holy Spirit will give us words or that our suffering will end in salvation? Well, we know this because Jesus did it first. Jesus was beaten and whipped by the Romans. He was falsely tried by the Jews. He was betrayed by Judas. He was hated by all his own people who chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus endured all of this to the end, and then he rose from the dead. And Jesus guarantees the promise by living and fulfilling it himself. All authority is given to Jesus, and this enables us, as his disciples, to confidently face suffering and sacrifice. The proclamation, the spread, the sharing of the gospel to all nations and salvation for all who endured to the end. And I pray this afternoon now that the Holy Spirit will open all of our eyes to see God, who can use us, you know, in our present suffering for his glory. And I pray that if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, that you will see and believe and accept, that, you know, that Jesus is the one who suffered for your good. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.